0: Welcome to episode 9 of Dad Does Drugs, my own podcast. I'm a dad of three and I want to find out as much as I can about drugs so I can talk to my children honestly about the risks, the rewards, the byproducts, the accidental outcomes of drug use. I want them to be drug aware so they can help themselves, their friends and others they bump into late night at a festival uh, to stay safe and well. I've read books, I've read articles, I've followed experts on Twitter and then interviewed people with first-hand experience of the drug landscape in the UK in 2019. So that's been bereaved parents, uh, police, politicians, criminologists, festival organisers, drug users, uh, musicians and scientists. And each week I play that interview to my teenage son and then we have a chat about it. Last week, actually, it was my six year old and 11 year old daughters. I didn't play them the interview because it was pretty heavy going. Uh, a mum whose daughter had died aged 18 last year. Uh, but I did talk to them age appropriately about drugs, and I think the message is you can do that with children. They're big enough and aft enough. You just need to exercise your own discretion as to how much you talk uh, about illegal, or illegal and legal and. It's really a safety message that you feel is appropriate. And for a six-year-old, for me, I felt it was good to talk to them about not popping pills that you don't know what they are. Uh, for an 11-year-old, it can be a bit more explicit. And then my 13-year-old, I think he's pretty robust. And so we have a chat each week about uh, the topic in question. And uh, today it will be an interesting one. Lots on cannabis.
1: Roll another blunt.
0: Today's guest is a fantastic communicator of the facts and evidence about lots of drugs and their effects. Uh, She's on Wikipedia. She's quite a big deal. It describes her like so... Dr Suzanne H Gage, I never asked her what the H stood for, is a British psychologist and epidemiologist, she does explain what that means, who is interested in the nature of associations between lifestyle behaviours and mental health. She is a lecturer at the University of Liverpool and has a popular science podcast, Say Why to Drugs, which explores substance use. So I met Susie last week in London at the Welcome Collection, which is a very big grand building near Euston Station. As I walked through Euston Station, I thought, oh, I haven't been here for a long time. The last time, I think, was when I was living in Birmingham. My friends were living in London and it was the end of the train line that I would come through when I came from the second city to the first in the UK and we would go out clubbing and then I would need to get home again. And so I would sleep on the floor of Euston Station (laughs) until I woke up in time to get a train home. Usually I would then fall asleep again and wake up in Wolverhampton before having to wait again for another train to get me finally back to Birmingham. Anyway, I digress. Uh, This big building near Euston is called the Wellcome Collection and it contains a museum. I went through the museum and took the lift straight to the fourth floor hub. You see, the building is home to the Wellcome Trust, a charity that funds research to achieve extraordinary improvements in health by supporting the brightest minds and the public understanding of science. Susie is one of those bright minds. She does a lot of science communication and they have an endowment of £25.9 billion to pay out. So they are one of the wealthiest charitable foundations in the world. Goodness. One of the people they do fund to communicate about science is Dr Susie Gage. So here she is talking to me from the fourth floor common room about her life, her research, her podcast, and her thoughts on my parental fears about cannabis use in my children. So hello, Dr Susie Gage. Hello. Um, Thank you ever so much for uh, doing this. You're a podcast veteran, so.
1: Well, yes.
0: (laughs) I feel like I'm in good company and you know the drill, so we'll begin. Uh, And I was really interested to talk to you um, because I've loved your podcast, Uh, but I thought it would be interesting to find out a bit about you, uh, the person behind the science that I've heard you talk about Mm -hmm. and how you got to where you are and why you're interested in what you do and uh, the story of uh, sort of what makes you tick a little bit. So, childhood, were you academic? Were you normal, sporty? <laughs> were you uh, an outcast? Were you druggy? What, 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 what sort of uh, an upbringing did you have in Buckinghamshire?
1: Is anyone normal? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I ever thought I'd be a scientist. Um, I kind of didn't know really what I wanted to do when I was at school. I did. Like quite well at school up until and just after GCSEs um, I was kind of good and then A-levels, I don't know I didn't really enjoy them particularly I, I was kind of ready to go on and do something else and I was also, I'd started playing in a band and I'd started right. going to gigs and maybe sneaking to London when I told my parents I was going around to a friend's house to go and watch bands, that kind of thing, okay. so there was a little bit of a naughtiness, but not in a kind of, I don't know, I I wasn't doing anything that bad, but I I was, like, my friends who I was going to London with were allowed to go to London. It was just my parents said no, but I did it anyway. Okay. So that was probably not great but like I didn't really get I didn't get into trouble at school Um, I got detention once ever and that was for playing air guitar in a chemistry (laughs) lesson (laughs) so you know I was fairly well behaved but yeah I didn't really there was no plan to go and become a scientist or anything like that I couldn't really I didn't it took me ages to decide what a-levels I wanted to do which perhaps why I wasn't that keen on them and I Having said that, I, like, I did A-level English and I absolutely loved it. It was my favourite thing. Right. Um, and actually, it was really useful in terms of then going on to do a degree in psychology because pra- like you write a lot of essays when you do a psychology mm. degree. Despite it being a science, you obviously do the science and the statistics and the experimental design and that kind of thing. But writing the essays is something that I really enjoyed and a lot of that came from my English A-level. And as well, we studied a book called Regeneration, which is all about um, this. Sort of setting up of a mental health hospital during the Se- uh, first or second World War. Siegfried Sassoon, Wilfred Owen. Uh, that would be first. that? Yes. first World War. Thank you. <laughs> Didn't study history, as you can tell. <laughs> um, but about sort of setting up a hospital for soldiers with shell shock and kind of thinking about mental health for the first time, and that kind of really made me think that psychology was perhaps a way to go. And then when I got to university, there was a module. Um, in fact, it was in, fo- in. You could take modules in other. Degrees right. in my second year, I did one in pharmacology that was called drugs in the brain, and uh, that was kind of really interesting. Thought that actually you can you can study addiction, you can study the effects of drugs, and um, yeah, the practical that we did for that class involved. Um, either drinking alcohol or taking nitrous oxide and doing a load of cognitive and sort of dexterity tasks right. and uh, comparing the two. Although I ended up in the placebo alcohol condition because obviously it was randomised, so I yeah. had to do them before and after having some orange juice. Oh. It was a little bit disappointing. Yeah. But um, yeah, that and also combined with in psychology, learning about mental health and learning about addiction and learning about the relationship between the two, that really sort of struck a chord with me, but then I had five years of not really doing anything like that and um, moving moved to Bristol because I was in a band, played in the band for a bit, um, eventually got a job in the psychology department of Bristol kind of doing all sorts of things like research assistant, but not anything to do with drugs or mental health. Okay. Uh, I worked in the language group, I worked in the memory group. I. Um, did some work looking at map reading on Google Maps, you know, anything basically, just yeah. sort of helping running studies and that kind of thing. And it was only a lot later, like I was maybe 28 when I started doing my PhD. Okay. So I had a bit of a long time of deciding what to do. Mm. But once I decided, it was, all, it was all go.
0: What influenced that choice then? Because I, I spoke to Professor Fiona Mishan. Uh, who set up The Loop, I'm sure yep, you know yep. of her, and she told a great story about how nightclubs were sort of in her DNA. From 13, she'd been sneaking into nightclubs <laughs> as a as a teenager, and so then when she started doing criminology and sort of noticed things about, oh, some people are going out and drinking, some people are going out and taking ecstasy, and, and for different reasons, mm. I wonder why that is. She felt then drawn into this world where, all her research has, has centred around or lots of it so what what sort of drew you into drugs and, and mental health
1: well i mean i guess in a way it's similar except i was more of an indie kid than a raver yeah so <laughs> i like i i think all but one boyfriend that i've ever had has been a musician i've been a musician i yeah. mean I still am a musician but um kind of a bit lapsed at the moment since i moved to liverpool i had to leave my bands in bristol which was a real shame but um knowing a lot of musicians and knowing people who sort of lead a more, I guess you'd call it an alternative lifestyle, so knowing lots of people who take a lot of different substances for various different reasons, and kind of, it was always the thing that I found the most interesting, I just never thought I was academically kind Mm. of good enough to be able to do that kind of research, and it was only when I... I very nearly moved to switzerland to do a phd looking at how color affects emotion like i really right. i really didn't think that this was a possible career for me until i happened to be in the right place at the right time and applied for this phd looking at the links between cannabis use and tobacco use and mental health in bristol adolescents and it just so happened that i was in the right place at the right time and had just started working in the tobacco and alcohol research group in the psychology department in bristol and yeah, like, it's something that I've always been interested in, but I just didn't—I didn't think I'd be able to do it, and it turns out I could, yeah. which was great.
0: And now is that your thing? Because my wife is a marine biologist, and uh, you know, I think probably when you start out as a teenager doing biology, and then you get drawn into the marine world, in your in- mind's eye is probably being on a rib testing sharks or something she's found herself in uh european oysters and the the restoration of those in murky waters of the solent but it's become her thing and and, you know and, and that uh i don't think she'll she'll do any other focus of research for quite some time so is is drugs and mental health your thing you found it
1: definitely definitely so i'm now i'm in an addiction group In Liverpool, but really, I'm not necessarily interested in addiction per se. I'm more interested in drug use more generally, because I think it's important to acknowledge that most people who use drugs don't develop dependence to them. The people who do are the people who are more likely to then have co-existing mental health problems as well. But I think trying to understand what direction this association is in. So, are people with poor mental health drawn to using substances because it helps, or because they? it feels like it helps, even if it actually might be also making things worse. Right. Trying to work out in what direction this association is going, that's the thing that I find really, really interesting.
0: And um, I'll definitely talk to you about that in a minute. How easy or difficult is it to do drug research on illegal drugs? How, how do you get the okay to do that?
1: Well, so I am an epidemiologist, which means I am interested in kind of population patterns. Right. And because of that, you well, if you wanted to do a study to find out whether one thing affects another thing, so say cannabis affects mental health, to get the best or the most accurate answer, what you would need to do is take a load of people who've never tried any substance and give half of them randomly randomly, split them into two groups, give half cannabis and half of them not, yeah. and follow them up over time and see what happens. But for obvious reasons, there's a that's completely it's impractical, it's unethical. The chances of getting people to sort of adhere to that is just not going to happen. So What you have to do is do what's called observational epidemiology so you watch what people choose to do and the people who choose to use cannabis are going to be different from the people who choose not to use cannabis in lots of ways other than just their cannabis use so you also have to try and take account of all of these differences as well so not only do you have to know what all the differences are which i think it's very hard to definitively say you've thought of every single possible thing that might be different but also you need to have good measures of them so kind of to answer your question is it's easy because we just ask people right. we're not we don't have to apply for the home office to get licenses to administer illicit substances to people which if you're doing experimental research that's kind of that's how you have to conduct right. this research but we just ask people about their drug use okay so, but then you've got to rely on them being honest you've got to rely on them remembering what they did you know all of these kind of things and you've also got this underlying problem of they might be different in other ways as well the people who choose to use cannabis rather than the people who choose not to
0: and do you recruit people are you trying to recruit randomly so you're not going to sort of mental health clinics to find people with mental health problems, you're hoping to get a bit of a cross-section of everyone.
1: Well, there's there's a few different ways of doing this kind of research. So the type of research that I've predominantly done is what you've just described there, of taking a general population sample and then following them up over time. So randomly select people from the population yeah. and follow them up and see what they choose to do. And of the ones who choose to use cannabis, how many of them go on after they start using cannabis to develop mental health problems. Right. But there are other ways of doing it. You can also start with your population with poor mental health. So you can start with a population of people with psychosis and find a matched population of people who are very similar to those people but don't have psychosis and then ask them about their previous cannabis use. So the way that I do it is called a... Um, a longitudinal cohort study and that way is called a case control study because you recruit your cases your people with psychosis and your control group your people without psychosis and then ask them to think back about their cannabis use
0: and is your have you been following a group for years and years
1: so the, the data that i've predominantly used is from a um, cohort study called the children of the 90s right and this is a study based in bristol which is obviously while I was doing my PhD there, although actually people all over the world use this data set because it's pretty enormous and quite unique. So what happened was in about 1990 to 1991, every pregnant woman in what was then Avon, so Bristol and the surrounding area of southwest England, were invited to take part in this study. And about 14,000 of them said yes. Wow. And them and their kids have been followed up ever since. It's still going on now. They're still So the kids are now what, 24, 25? Right. 28. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, 28 years twenty eight, twenty
0: nine. yeah. 28,
1: 29, yeah. So they've got this incredibly rich data set and um, it includes interviews. So they come into a clinic and are sort of interviewed by um, people with sort of like trained psychologists, I guess, yes. about their mental health. They've also um, been sent questionnaires through the post to fill out. They've come into the lab and had body scans. They've had blood samples, hair samples. Um, There's a warehouse in Somerset with 14,000 placentas in buckets of formaldehyde. Wow! So legend has it. I mean, I think it's true because I think someone actually published using that data quite recently. But the point is it's not just a drug and mental health cohort. It's investigating all kinds of physical, mental health um, development, because obviously these people were recruited, the children were recruited before they were born Um, So we've got this incredibly rich data about pregnancies, about the births, about young childhood and adolescence and now early adulthood as well some of the children of the 90s have now had children too so it's actually three generational in some places yeah. and we've got genetic information on them as well i think about 8000 of them have had their genotype sequence okay so yeah it's a pretty is
0: that unique is there anything else like that in the world going on
1: so there are a few there've been a few studies like that in the uk i think there was a or simi- well, a na- nationwide one in the 70s there's also one called the millennium cohort study which is countrywide and that was um, as you probably guessed uh, Babies were recruited in the millennium. Right. So yeah. they are, yeah, coming up to 20 years old now. And actually, I've also done some work with a colleague um, at UCL and we've looked at comparing the children of the 90s who were born in 1990 to the millennium cohort who were born in 2000 to look at kind of what's changed over the last 10 years yeah. in terms of drug use and mental health as well.
0: And do you get... Um, are they all anonymous? So do you, you don't know who these people are? But
1: no, you... that's, that's the thing. It's like when I told people about my PhD, saying I was looking at the links between cannabis use and psychosis, it sounds really interesting like you get to talk to some really interesting people but I just get sent the spreadsheet of ones and zeros. I don't get to actually meet any of the people. Um, I have met people who are in the cohort because we do also lots of outreach work with them because if they decided to leave the cohort, it wouldn't exist anymore. So the participants, like the most important thing about the cohort, they're incredible and the fact that they, year in, year out send their surveys back and come into the lab and all of this kind of thing, particularly now they've Moved away, gone to university, that kind of thing. But knowing, like, like they've got no way, and I wouldn't want to know who links up to what ones and zeros, uh, if you know what I mean.
0: Would you develop a affection for number one, four, 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 six, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, oh, oh, they've had a rough year. <laughs> uh,
1: the, I think you don't really look at the individual level data in that way, but you definitely get to know the data set like for a while the um, passcode on my phone was the number of people who'd answered a particular survey at a particular year right. because it was a number that was like emblazoned into my mind yeah. and you would never forget it.
0: <laughs> so I'll ask some of the cannabis research questions that I've that I've got from a parental fear point of view mm-hmm. uh, because I think it sort of ties into all the stuff that you're doing so there's a new story that i saw in october of last year so 2018 parent fear one that if you use cannabis you'll fail exams so this was um, massachusetts general hospital center for addiction medicine in boston abstaining from cannabis for a month could boost the memory performance of regular users according to a study of young people who used cannabis once a week so is that fear kind of justified you think as a parent you're going to ruin your chances at school if you smoke cannabis
1: i think The the sort of important thing to think about with all of these studies is they've all been conducted in the way that I described earlier. So the people who choose to use cannabis versus the people who don't choose to use cannabis. And I don't know about that paper, so I can't talk about the specifics of it. But I think the things that are quite interesting are what age are people using cannabis, particularly when you're younger in your teens. It's more risky, it seems, in terms of brain development, because we do know a bit about how the brain develops during adolescence. And one thing that seems to change is the level of what are called CB1 and CB2 receptors. So we have an endocannabinoid system in our brain. Mm. We create cannabinoid-like chemicals in our brain that pass um, information between one neuron and another, they're called neurotransmitters. So things like, you might have heard of like dopamine and serotonin and neurotransmitters, but we also have some that are similar to chemicals like THC and cannabidiol that are in cannabis. Right. So that's why when we smoke cannabis, we experience something in our brains is because we have these receptors that are kind of de- designed or have, have evolved, is probably a better way of putting it, to fit, um, molecules that are similar shape to cannabinoids because we have this endocannabinoid system in our brain. Yeah. And we know that those receptors, the CB1 and CB2 receptors, do change in sort of frequency and um, where they are in the brain changes over adolescence. So it's plausible, therefore, that if you consume a substance that's full of things that react with those receptors, that might influence how that development happens. Mm. And certainly when we look at the evidence, we see that people who start using cannabis at a younger age, so earlier on in their teenage years, have a higher risk than people who start using when they're in their early 20s, for example. But you've also got the confounder then that the people who start when they're that young have been using for a longer amount of time, so perhaps it's had more of an effect. Or the people who start using cannabis at sort of like 13 or 14, They're likely to be quite different sort of socio-demographically from people who start using cannabis in their 20s so the thing that's really the thing that's really difficult is kind of untangling all this and saying well what's actually the cause is it the cannabis itself or is the cannabis a marker for sort of if someone is using cannabis that young what else is going on in their lives and might that also be impacting their like are they more likely to play truant are they more likely to um have less motivation yeah have fallen out of their social circles you know all of these kind of things cannabis use doesn't exist in isolation so untangling what it is but i think if a I, i'd like as i say i don't know what age the children were in that study but if young people of say sort of 14 15 year olds are using cannabis once a week that's quite frequent mm. for for a teenager i think if the teenager was using alcohol once a week they, if they stopped for a month that would probably also improve their ability yes. on their exams as well yeah. so i don't necessarily yeah
0: okay that's uh, i mean I, I know that all of these are it's a it's an area that you just need to have i think a good relationship with your children over their upbringing exactly. and, and w- whatever so and that's what i'm trying to do uh have the drug thing covered but also i realize it's kind of helping my relationship with my son talking uh just about all sorts of things that he's navigating as a teenager. I think that's it as
1: well. If if your child is using cannabis every week what else is going on in their lives? Might Mm. there be things that you can sort of talk to them about and help with?
0: The the other fear that I definitely have as a parent, so parent fear number two uh, is that fear that you uh, suggested there that if you start using cannabis you become a sort of dropout stoner all motivation and focus goes and there's a study, again from October of last year, a Canadian study at the University of Montreal suggested teenagers using cannabis are causing long-lasting damage to their developing brains. It found the impact on thinking skills, memory and behaviour was worse than that of teenage drinking and they urged teenagers to delay their use of cannabis for as long as they felt able. So do you see in any of your studies that sort of, is there a causal thing for the lack of motivation and and get up and go and doing anything other than getting stoned
1: i think a lot of these studies the associations are really driven by people who are using cannabis kind of daily so people who are using cannabis more often than they're not using cannabis that's certainly true for the links that you see between cannabis use and mental health problems is that the strongest associations by far are with the people who are using cannabis every day and potentially using high THC strains of cannabis although that evidence is a a bit weaker just we haven't got enough of it it's not necessarily doesn't mean it's less true it's just it's harder to sort of definitively say and I think that's something to say about all of this literature as well is that when we talk about uncertainty that doesn't mean it is the case or it's not the case it just means that from what we know from the research it's hard to tell which yeah. isn't very reassuring i completely understand that but um it's i think it's important and like something that i am quite passionate about is m- helping people to make informed choices and if that means the information that we have the best information is we don't know it could be this but it, we also might not be then that's what you have to say yeah so in terms of answering your question I think if people are using cannabis heavily and regularly it is going to affect their motivation just because of the sort of the intoxication effects of cannabis and intoxication can last for quite a while yeah um, and that can then even when you think you're no longer intoxicated you might still be sort of feeling the after effects and I know that study said it was more so than Teen drinking, but I think it's important to make these kind of comparisons that using cannabis sort of rarely and socially is kind of very different to using high THC cannabis every day mm. by yourself, for example. And it's the same with alcohol. If, you, if sort of a teenage child is having a few drinks every so often with friends, like at parties, it's not great, but you know like teenagers are designed to experiment they're designed <laughs> yeah. to take risks like it's really something about being a teenager that is take risk taking is kind of inherent in that but that's very different to someone who is a teenager who is sort of drinking vodka every day yes you know i think it's important to to kind of make this distinction that the warning signs are about the patterns of behaviour. So it might not necessarily be to do with the substance itself. It's the warning signs are, if someone's using very heavily, very regularly, that's going to be risky for lots of reasons. And it might not necessarily be the substance itself, but it might be because why are they feeling that they need to use cannabis every day and heavily?
0: Yeah. One of the next fears you touched on as well is the mental health issues. Obviously, as your specialty as a parent, fear number three mental health problems come from cannabis use. And there's headlines in the sun, teen cannabis is to blame for 60,000 people suffering depression in the UK. And this was from a, a study that University of Canada, University of Oxford and Rutgers University in the US did, published in February 2019. So teen users were 37% more likely to be depressed as adults. Now, is that causal or is it not causal? Uh, what, what can you say? Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, again, so it's sort of definitively saying anything about causality is hard. And the evidence about the link between cannabis and depression is far from clear. Wow. And there are many people who believe that it goes in the opposite direction and that actually cannabis can help people who are who are suffering from depression, um, to deal with their depression. But there does seem to be an association. You do see depression at higher levels in people who use cannabis. Whether it's something to do with the effect of the cannabis on the brain, I think we definitely can't say that yet. Uh, There is not enough evidence to say either way. And again, I feel like it's this sort of pattern of being a, a heavy cannabis user as a teenager is probably indicative of lots of other things other than just the cannabis
0: use. Yeah, and what's, what's your gut instinct, if, if you have one, about the gradual legalisation that seems to be going on? Uh, it seems sort of fairly inevitable that before long, lots of con- countries, maybe even ours, will legalise cannabis, then I suppose it's regulated, so you know what, how strong the joint is that you're smoking so does that start to make it safer easier to monitor or would that be be alarming because you think oh no now loads of people are going to think it's been endorsed by the government so they can
1: yeah i think all of these issues are important and there are countries that are dealing with legalization and regulation better than others and there's a sort of there's loads of different possible routes that Governments can take you can just decriminalize like Portugal has done where you don't you don't start selling it to yourself You don't regulate it. You just don't sort of you treat it as a health problem rather than a criminal problem Basically, so you help people who are struggling with their substance use But you don't punish people who are using illicit drugs or you can go the sort of Uruguay route and kind of You can only buy it in sort of Medically licensed place. I think that's how Uruguay do it. I'm not a hundred percent sure
0: Quick Uruguay fact check. In August 2014, Uruguay legalised, growing up to six plants of your own at home, the formation of cannabis growing clubs and state-controlled shops. But it took quite a while to get that retail side set up. It wasn't until 2017 that 16 pharmacies were authorised to sell cannabis commercially. Now, that's in a country three times bigger than Ireland – So that's a long drive to find a chemist to buy some government weed. And the problem with legalising, but not making it convenient or priced appropriately, is that people don't move across and buy it legally. They carry on funding the criminals by buying it from their local dealer instead. So you do have to try and get legal regulation right when you do it. But you don't have to get it right first time, and I think they're still tweaking it in Uruguay. OK, fact check over. Back to Susie.
1: The way that the US has done it... They've kind of gone the very business business model of it, and there are definitely ways that they that it could have been done better. So particularly around things like edibles. I mean, if you turn it into cookies or sweets, like obviously, who's that the most appealing to? And it's probably children. Right. Um, Also, you then run the risk of much younger children. It's sort of seeing a cookie on the side and picking it up and eating it by mistake, or a lollipop, or you know that kind of thing. But also. In the US, there's been no kind of control over potencies, um, particularly levels of THC. Okay. And what's actually happened is incredibly high strength THC has become really popular. And one thing that we think from the evidence so far is that high THC, where also there's low cannabidiol, which is another cannabinoid. So THC is the one that gives you the kind of high experience, Yeah. Um, but it also can when you're intoxicated it can have slightly sort of psychotic like experiences as well so you can feel paranoid and you can feel anxious and all of this kind of thing and this other chemical cannabidiol seems to slightly mediate that from the experimental sort of intoxication studies anyway and one thing that people worry about skunk in the uk is kind of thc thc high cbd low strains of cannabis yeah. might be particularly risky in terms of mental health, particularly really serious mental health problems like psychosis. So one thing that you could do with regulation is put a cap on THC levels yeah. and say, we will make this cannabis unavailable, but cannabis under this, you will be able to get sort of regulated the same way alcohol is, for example, or yeah. even if you go sort of medicinal route, then that would be what would be available in pharmacies. But in the U.S. what's what happened is that very, very high THC um, cannabis, it's called shatter. So it's kind of, I don't really know how to describe it, but that kind of preparation of cannabis has become really popular. Okay. And that's potentially quite worrying.
0: Yeah. So is CBD the cannabis Yes, you know, the yeah, thing. yeah. So, oh yeah,
1: so you've probably seen CBD oil for sale in health food shops and that yeah, kind of thing. CBD yeah. yeah, CBD
0: everything. CBD mascara. CBD hummus. <laughs> uh, hummus. Right, okay. <laughs> CBD
1: mascara, wow.
0: CBD skin cream, uh, yeah. CBD bubble bath, cookies, you know, there's a shop just opened near me selling all of these kind of products. So obviously they've got no THC and so you can't get high off any of these yeah. things. But is there any evidence to say that they do any good because they claim to do everything. Yes. Cure cancer and get, make your skin better and make yeah. your hair nicer. Be,
1: and... I mean, if it were true, don't you think that there'd be a lot of people sort of looking and feeling much better than they are? Yeah. Um, there's, very, there's been very little good quality research, as right. you might expect. In terms of the CBD oil that you can buy in shops, because it's not a sort of regulated product, it doesn't have to be tested. So when studies have taken samples from various different shops, or even from the same product, and tested the level of CBD in the things and compared it to how much CBD they say is in, often it's not at all accurate. So some things have far more than they say, some things have far less than they say, some things have absolutely none at all. You know, there's no regulation, so it's not, what you're taking isn't necessarily what you think it is. But also, particularly for the products where you eat it, the amount that's in there is not enough to sort of, your body would, metabolize it before it could have any effect okay so um yeah i think at the moment like if you like the product just go for it but don't think that cbd is going to cure all your problems and definitely don't think it's going to cure your serious health problems where you need to go and speak to a doctor
0: yeah one thing that i heard um someone saying on, a, on another podcast i listened to was that they, they live in california and they <laughs> vape their kind cannabis of, so another big parental fear of mine is that any of my children start smoking really just because i i started smoking after university i don't know how i navigated my way all through teenage years yes, not smoking you're a
1: bit of an anomaly there and
0: then decided <laughs> at about age 22 to start smoking and it, and it took me years and years to give up and in this country the tendency is to just take your cannabis rolled with tobacco whereas mm-hmm. in other countries
1: that's not the case they don't yeah. do that
0: or now you can vape it uh, as well so is cannabis in itself particularly harmful or can you associate you know smoking cannabis on its own with the things that you might associate with normal cigarettes and things?
1: well as you say it's really hard to tease that out um, certainly in the UK because the vast majority of people who use cannabis mix it with tobacco here mm. there's some suggestion that smoking cannabis isn't as harmful as smoking tobacco but I am not convinced by that because the way that you smoke cannabis as well you hold it in your lungs for longer than you hold tobacco in your lungs so the sort of the, the smoke and the carcinogens are going to be in your lungs for longer right and yeah you would don't have exactly the same kind of chemical and heavy metal profile in cannabis smoke that you do in tobacco smoke but it's still like anything that you're kind of burning, like burnt toast, you know, you shouldn't inhale smoke. <laughs> it's no. not good for your lungs, right. it's not good for you. So definitely if there are sort of harm reductions in terms of the physical harm, then vaping or um, heat not burn, which is a bit like vaping. So in vaping, you sort of get the like extract of cannabis, okay. but heat not burn devices, you put the actual cannabis in and then that heats it up and releases the cannabinoids. so there are some heat not burn products for tobacco as well and at the moment it's not really clear where they fit on this kind of harm reduction spectrum where e-cigarettes are obviously less harmful than smoking cigarettes but heat not burn is probably somewhere between the two possibly closer to e-cigarettes but we're not really sure yet and so in terms of cannabis it would probably be the same that heating it up and breathing in that sort of vapor is Likely to be better for your lungs than smoking and inhaling the smoke. Yeah, but yeah, that's very much a sort of hypothetical rather than the the research hasn't been done yet.
0: Okay, so I've re listened to recently episode one, I think, of your podcast, uh, which is the cannabis episode, which is the cannabis episode, yeah. So, um People. I need, probably
1: need to update it. It's like two years old now. It's been uh, so much research since. Then. Right.
0: Well, it, it, it's still um, it's still interesting, and particularly I like the the myth busting bit that you, you My do. My favorite bit of every episode. So the gateway drug idea. On this podcast, I've spoken to a couple of people who, who did experience the, the kind of classic, thing that would be said, where you start with cannabis mm-hmm. and you escalate then to stronger, more harmful drugs, and in both cases. Obviously, they're buying it illegally. So, so, one case, it was just one one guy, one week. Um, uh, his dealer didn't have any weed, and so he said, "Why don't you try this?" And so he gave him some heroin. Wow. And and, and then gradually, he, he you know obviously he didn't straight away become a smack addict, but he did try it then more and more times. And then the other guy, he he was just in a bit of a cycle of trying new things with his mate you know their party trick became to get wasted and they'd get wasted on different things and so uh, inevitably i suppose at some point they escalated to to trying heroin and and he got hooked on that is it just the fact that it's because it's illegal and you're going to a dealer or is there any sort of suggestion that if you're a drug takey type person you're likely to start with one that's mild and escalate your way through them
1: yeah, I think I think both of those things could quite plausibly be true. Right. I think there's also the issue that the way that we currently educate about drugs is quite conducive to starting with cannabis and moving on to, well, for want of a better word, stronger stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because we're told as children that all drugs are bad and that kind of implies that all drugs are the same. Mm. And cannabis is one that you might be more likely to see people using at a younger age and you see your friends using it and go well they're fine so maybe this isn't true and if it's not true about cannabis and then maybe you try using cannabis and go i'm fine but if it's not true about cannabis then maybe it's also not true about mdma then maybe it's also not true about cocaine maybe it's also not true about heroin you know yeah the message that young people are given is is overly simplistic and therefore uh, I was going to say incredible, but maybe I mean un, un, not credible, that's, yes. that's how to put it. So I think that could also be part of it. But I think both of those explanations that you provided there are perfectly plausible as well. One that as soon as you st- take a step over that line, like of course, if you're underage and you're using alcohol and tobacco, then technically like, you're that's not allowed, you're doing something illicit. Yeah. But at one point they would have been purchased legally yes. somewhere along the line, probably. Um, Whereas with an illicit substance like cannabis, that would probably be the first step into being able to buy it yourself as a younger age, because you're not going to be asked for your ID in that circumstance. So once you then realise that, maybe it's then easier to get hold of other things. And cannabis is the place where people start, because although we get this message that all drugs are bad, we probably, if people have got older brothers or older sisters, and then that would be the substance that is seen as safe compared to other illicit drugs and kind of the first one but that doesn't mean that the cannabis is the gateway drug it's just that that's the sort of the steps that people take maybe you'd say like alcohol or tobacco was the gateway drug because that was the first psychoactive substance that you tried
0: yeah i'm reading um a book at the moment called out of it which is in very fine print and it's taken me a long time <laughs> to go through it because uh, it's, it's very wordily written um, but it, it's really interesting because it's all about a sort of history of intoxication and, and the idea you know in a nutshell that humans its a bit of a just a human urge like eating having sex yep. you know and so to to experiment with getting out of your head a little bit yeah. uh, is, is sort of natural so we've pigeonholed everything into drugs legal or otherwise but actually just having a bit of an out of uh, out of your usual frame of reference experience is sort of a natural human yeah. thing to do
1: and hu- humans have been using drugs for as long as there have been humans and possibly longer than there have been humans right. and non-human animals eat sort of fermented fruit and that kind of thing and experience intoxication you know it's so there's an anthropologist i think he's called Donald Brown but he uh, wrote about human universals so things like language and music that appear in all cultures across history right. and he said psychoactive substances were one of the human us- universals they are seen throughout history they're seen in cultures all around the world
0: right i'm enjoying chatting to my son he's 13 my eldest child As a, he, he loves his favorite subject at the moment is re just loves that sort of debating things which are grey, things which are kind of interesting areas to what do we think about peace and war Mm. and how do different religions look at it and that sort of thing. And so he's loved and I've enjoyed the kind of chat with him about this sort of subject area because uh, there aren't hard and fast rules. Uh, And and I think he can... Just say no is is a slightly pointless exercise. It isn't working So because people do try lots of things. And why are we saying that to just say yes to... Alcohol is okay, exactly. when we know it's very harmful. I think but that's just that's where it
1: different. really falls down is when you when you realise the hypocrisy of how not just accepted but kind of encouraged alcohol is, and the, like what we know about the health harms and the mental health harms of alcohol, and why why is that substance allowed but others aren't, and why is why does it become a moral thing where mm. yeah of course it's fine to go out and get absolutely sl- sloshed with your mates, but if you um, if you take an illicit drug, it's a moral failing and it's a judgment on you and your character. It's yeah. very, it's, yeah, I, th- I think that's where where this just say no completely falls down.
0: And so I presume that was a starting point for you wanting to do your podcast and say why to drugs rather than say exactly, no to drugs. Yeah. Um, so as a, as a podcast fan and, and uh, obviously I've enjoyed yours and I like the kind of podcast world, how did you get this passion for communicating science and things and then how did it lead you into the podcast?
1: Well, so I first, I first started really doing this kind of thing um, when I started doing my PhD And it started when I took part in this event called I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here, which was run by um, a group based just near Bristol, actually, coincidentally. But it's all done online. And um, what it does is it takes five, in each each group, there's five academics or scientists or what have you. And they're paired with eight classes of school children across the country. And the children can ask the scientists any question they want anything at all. It doesn't have to be anything to do with science. It doesn't have to be anything to do with their research field. So part of the reason of it is to show school children that scientists aren't all white men in white lab coats who know everything about everything, that actually yeah. it's really diverse and also that scientists have a speciality. And so I'm a psychologist. I haven't got a clue how much the moon weighs, but I can tell you about these various things. You yeah. know, So you, part of the joy of it is getting questions and going, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> But I can tell you something interesting about something else. And the first week, you just you answer these questions. So the questions either come by email or you do um, live chats where you've got two windows on your computer screen and you've got thirty school kids in one window and the five academics in the other going, "Oh my god, I can't keep up!" Yeah, and it's so much fun and it's brilliant and it takes two weeks. And the first week, you just answer the questions. The second week, the kids vote one one person out per day, okay. and the winner um, gets. 500 pounds to do a science communication project and part of the thing you have to do when you sign up is you create your profile and one of the things is what i would do with the money if i won so i said well what i'd do is i'd make um podcasts aimed at teenagers that explain what we know about the science about drugs without any kind of hyperbole without any spin and without any judgment so it's just place to find information yeah and um the kids as well as your answers to the question they decide based on the profile and based on what you're what you say you're going to do and so i won so i had to make these podcasts right and at that point i hadn't really done any kind of science communication stuff at all i didn't really know what i was doing around that time i also started writing a science blog so that was also thinking about communicating these kind of concepts yeah and um that kind of did quite well a bit quicker than I was expecting because I initially started it to kind of improve my writing because I knew I had to do a PhD, write a PhD thesis at the end of the three years and then it won a competition um, and some of the judges from the competition uh, run the Guardian science blog network as used to be and they asked me to or invited me to pitch the blog to their network. So I did that and basically it meant that in less than a year after starting the blog I was suddenly writing on the Guardian's (laughs) website which was... (laughs) absolutely terrifying in all honesty and that also meant the podcast had to kind of i didn't have time to do both and do my phd so the blogging kind of took priority and in the background i was working on the podcast i was trying to think of a name i was trying to work out how to how to structure them so i did it i did a couple of interviews with um, some brilliant academics so i interviewed robin harris who does some amazing work on psychedelics yeah. and i interviewed harry Sumner, who's a professor at liverpool john moore's and uh incredibly knowledgeable really interesting and wonderful person uh, but i didn't know what i was doing i didn't know how to record people properly i didn't know how to ask people good questions even more importantly and they were just like no disrespect to either of those people because it was entirely my fault. They were just quite dry and they didn't really, they wouldn't have been interesting to teenagers, I can tell you that
2: much.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They were uh, like, it's all interesting content. I just hadn't, I just didn't know what to do with it basically. And then uh, luck happened and Scroobius Pip, who is a podcaster, rapper, now actor, and yeah, very successful podcaster,
2: yeah.
1: uh, tweeted to his 100,000 or however many followers he's got, saying that he was going to be in the Southwest and he was looking for someone to record for his podcast. So his podcast comes out once a week and it's him talking to people that he thinks is interesting. Yeah. So it's quite often actors, comedians, musicians lots of wrestlers because yeah. he likes wrestling that's
0: his distraction pieces exactly podcast, yeah it? right. so
1: uh, it's been at the top of the iTunes chart many times it's very popular it's had however many million downloads you know yeah and so he put out this call for people in the Southwest, and someone replied saying Huey Morgan from the Fun Loving Criminals someone else replied saying me Hughie was busy <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, he ended up coming around to my house in right. fact like two days before I was moving so it was just like a castle of cardboard boxes. But we sat down and had a chat about the type of research that I do, about uh, what it's like being a woman in science. Yeah. And I mentioned the podcast. It didn't exist at this point, but I knew that if I said it on his podcast, I had to do it, right. and I already had to do it, but I had to do it doubly. Yes. <laughs> so I thought if I mention it in the real world to thousands of people, then that's gonna be even more motivation. Yeah. And he said three things. The first thing he said was, oh, you should call it Say Why to Drugs. It's like, oh, that's such a good name. Yeah. And I've been thinking for, like, by that point, probably two years about what to call okay. it. And the <laughs> best I'd come up with was Smokescreen, and I was like, that is not good enough. Yeah. So that was the first thing he said. The second thing he said was, I'm starting a podcast network, and um, it would like I'd love to put this podcast on the network. And the third thing he said was, you should do it you talking to a non-expert but interested friend, and I can be that friend if you want to. Burning. So it's like, how could I say no, really? And like, we didn't know each other. We'd, we'd met for that one time of recording his podcast. Yeah. And then maybe a few months later, we recorded the first five episodes of Say Why to Drugs. Yeah. And it just worked. Like, it's just somehow it just, he was interested. I had done my research. Um, we kind of structured, like I'd done a lot of reading and stuff and I told him what substances we were going to talk about, but nothing more than that. So actually, it's quite natural the way we go. I didn't know how he was going to react to what I was saying, yeah. but it just, yeah, they, they. it's really important, I think, to have voices other than scientists in mm. this kind of conversation, because it's, re, it's about the real world. And
0: But I like the interplay uh, between you two, where he will, he will, so there's a couple of interesting things. One yeah. is the interplay between you and him yeah, when uh, he's, Sort of talking anecdotally about you know oh well, I've got a mate who you know always wants to eat a croissant after he smokes yeah. weed and then and, and I can you can almost hear you sort of yes and thinking is there any scientific basis for what he's just yeah. said can I no, can I endorse no, that can I agree or yeah. not and so so there's that sort of balance um, and another podcaster I like is John Ronson who's done a really interesting podcast The Butterfly Effect mm-hmm. I don't know if you've listened to it but where he Looks at the porn industry and and um, the real human uh, people, you know, real humans behind it all, yeah. and, and the human stories affected by changes in the in the industry and the way people use porn. So again, a kind of an illicit, odd yeah. subject to associate yourself with. Uh, and i I love his non-judgmental style, which you and and Scooby's Pip have on yours. Uh, but but was was Pip worried about? putting himself out there, you know, because he talks about his own drug use. And I've done that on this podcast. And yeah. I found that a real nervousness to thinking, well, I don't know if I dare to do that. I- the way my podcast works I chat to my son at the end so he's going to hear it you know yeah. uh, he listens to it and then we talk about it uh, and it, and I feel like the honest con- conversation that I want to have with him hopefully other people will then have is is the value yeah, out of it yeah
1: absolutely but it
0: but it's a kind of a it's nervous to commit to to doing that did you have sort of reservations even about going public about lots of druggy interest and, and what have you
1: but i i think that is a sort of product of this kind of moral judgment Mm, that we have which is there's no there's no sort of reason to have that moral judgment so yes i completely agree with what you said that it is like it is a really difficult thing to do to talk about your illicit drug use and i'm incredibly grateful to pip for being so candid and being willing to talk about it and i guess for him maybe he is happy to do so because it's it's somewhat historical so he's mostly in fact if not always talking about what he's done in the past rather than sort of currently but yeah it's a it's a decision that like you wouldn't get into trouble for talking about it Um, but you do uh, there is a genuine worry about it and I think that's really sad because we can't have grown up conversations as you say with our Children about this kind of thing. If we're not willing to be grown up ourselves and talk about it,
0: yeah. The,
1: so it's. In, I think it's incredibly important, and yeah.
0: Well, to, play um, to you, there is a there is a, definitely a stigma, and I've heard. You know, as part of the podcast, I've spoken to parents who've um, been bereaved parents have lost their children to um, overdoses and things, and and they experience a stigma because. Somehow they were bad parents, or you know, just, they feel there's an undercurrent yeah. when they, you know, from other people. Just to, so, there's definitely stigma around Absolutely. any kind of admission of a connection to drugs in any way, even when it's a tragic, yeah. uh, tragic, painful one like that just a couple of final things then uh before um i say thank you very much um so uh one is uh, your have you just written or are you writing a book that spins off from your podcast
1: yes so i have just submitted to my uh publisher say why to drugs the book so that's going to be uh, tweaked and polished and what have you over the next few months and it's going to come out in january next year but it's kind of taking the podcast and jumping off from it so it's much sort of deeper dive into the different substances what we know about them what we don't know about them the myths and misconceptions that exist around them there's about 27 different substances covered maybe 28 maybe a bit more there might be more added when I think of them (laughs) over the next few months I already know that I haven't yet written about mescaline but I'm going to do that so there's going to be at least one more chapter than what's currently written but potentially a couple more as well
0: Right. and um and the the next and you plan to carry on so you've kind of covered all the drugs in your podcast and then you do these kind of extra episodes every now and again on a theme uh, yeah uh, are there more still coming
1: yep yeah, i recorded one uh two days ago a live podcast about the link between music and drugs and i think that's probably going to be a mini series i'm definitely going to do more ask me things as well because they were really popular and um there are actually a few substances certainly substances that are going to be in the book that ha- don't have podcasts yet so i'm going to record them some with pip hopefully and some with experts in in research into those particular substances as well so still plenty of plans right. and then yeah, I've got ideas for when I do run out of drugs of where to go next, but um I'm not 100% sure yet, so I have to watch this space.
0: Okay, great. And and finally, uh, according to Wikipedia, you oh, were, good start. <laughs> you were in the 2013 Science Girl calendar. That is true. G R R L which I guess was promoting women in science in some way. Which month were you and, and what, what, how did that work? Oh,
1: uh, I was April. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, because the my picture was taken in the rain, that's why I ended up being April. Okay. But um, yeah, so there, that all came about because there was a video made by the European Commission to launch their, um, they were trying to encourage girls into science and they made this video called Science, it's a girl thing. And it was just the most appalling thing I've ever seen ever seen the only person doing any actual science in the video was a man the women were all in lab coats and high heels and sort of like holding makeup brushes and kind of giggling and like writing on a whiteboard and that kind of thing yeah so so science twitter got angry as, as science twitter does sometimes but what happened was a load of women um who were scientists said well we are women in science we can do better than this so we thought well what can we do what let let's just take pictures of us normal women scientists yeah. doing our work and make a calendar for charity so we did that and um my, the concept of mine was because I used this big data set based in Bristol. I took my desk and my computer down into Millennium Square in Bristol, so this big open space, mm. and um, I sat very still at my desk while someone with a very long exposure camera took a picture of all the crowds milling around uh, me, yeah. so the crowds all blurred, and I was there working in the middle of it using the people of Bristol as my data. Right. Great concept. On the day, it was absolutely peeing it down, quite a lot like today, actually.
2: Yeah.
1: and. Um, So I made loads and loads of cake to try and bribe all my friends to come down. And in the end, the people who did come down had to just run really fast around me to create (laughs) the blur. But actually the picture looks really cool. And um, it was such a brilliant thing to be part of. And actually Science Girl became an organization after that because, in making this calendar we kind of accidentally created this amazing network of brilliant women in science who we support each other we can go and go and do talks about what it's like to be a woman in science help girls to sort of think about science as a career but also actually what's been even more important is supporting each other um, because it can be difficult to stay in academia more difficult for women because of their like all sorts of different reasons but um, yeah so science girls are absolutely amazing amazing thing
0: and being a woman in drugs in science is drugs research a male area
1: i think it's 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 not too bad um, I think it depends on which kind of aspect of it so certainly in terms of like psychology is a very it's very female led in undergrad, but by the time you get to professors it's obviously it becomes more male dominated again mm. so which is amazing given that it's sort of Undergrad courses are often 80 or 90% female. And yet, I've worked in a few psychology departments, and almost all of them have been for by far predominantly male professors, maybe one or two female professors. Right. So, something's happening between undergrad and professor where the few men are staying and the multitude of women are leaving. Mm. Um, but in terms of addiction, I think uh, there's a really, really great community of male and female scientists so yeah it's a great field to work in
0: brilliant um well uh thanks ever so much for talking to me uh, thank you it's, it's been a pleasure no it's fascinating and uh i will keep listening to your podcast and uh i hope people enjoyed this as an introduction into what you do as well so, great thank you ever so much yeah Groovy, we're recording. <laughs> groovy. Uh, groovy. So that was a very, that's dated even for me as a, um, you know, uh, I would find that dated if my dad said it. So <laughs>
2: groovy. It
0: is, anyway, I'm a child of the '90s, not the '60s. So why am I saying groovy? Uh, we're on episode nine of this podcast series, and um, and Credence is back to talk Hello. drugs after a week off. When I chatted to the girls, yeah. So, Dr. Susie Gage knows what she's talking about. What did yeah, you I really think? like this
2: episode, actually. It's one of my favourite ones so far, I think. Great. Um, yeah, I just found it really interesting how research and just, like, how the conversation flowed really well, I believe. Like, I think it just went really well.
0: Yes, she's a really good talker, and I got on with her, so that was mm. nice. And um, I thought you might like it. Tell me about what you liked. Was it to do with her scientific and evidence-based approach to things.
2: Yeah, yeah. I've got to talk about the different graphs and things, the way she conducted her research with different, like, like sample groups.
0: Hmm. Yes, it's interesting thinking about experimental design and how it all... Yeah. How she does all of that. And I was amazed at that that Bristol project, you know, that they yeah, just sent to all those like... pregnant women in, in 1999. Yeah. And they're still, or their kids are still signed up to it now. Yeah. But no, 1990, actually, that one was because they're nearly 30, the kids now. Um, yeah. Which is amazing. There was had,
2: another one, The Children of the Millennia.
0: That's right, yeah. There's another study, wasn't there? But then we got onto cannabis, and I thought we haven't really talked much about cannabis yeah, yeah, explicitly in this series. Yeah. Yeah, what did you think of the things that she was saying in that?
2: Um, yeah, about the, like, the danger, how cannabis is actually more dangerous than people think. Yeah. Because like, of the way people just like, still smoke it. And smoking is like, they say it's like, you know, less dangerous than cannabis, but you take it the same way, which means smoke's gonna still going into your lungs and it's in there for longer. So yeah, I, it's I, I, less I, acrid that it's just still in there for just as long. So,
0: yeah, good word, acrid. Um, yes, I'd never really heard anyone specifically talk about the fact that smoke is just not a good thing to suck into your lungs.
2: Yeah, I've, I've always been aware. I think I never want to smoke anything just because of that.
0: Well, that's a really good starting point. But I love the fact that she used a phrase like, well, of course, the heavy metal profile of cannabis smoke is not quite as carcinogenic as that of tobacco, yeah. uh, which is a brilliant scientific way of looking at it. But So uh, I think it's less harmful to smoke cannabis, but...
2: Yeah, just the way you're smoking. smoke. In this country,
0: people roll a joint... Yeah, and, with uh, tobacco ...with tobacco, they? which makes it kind of just the same as smoking for, for those dangers. Um, Plus, there's
2: the slide-down of danger of weed.
0: Yeah, which I think is an interesting one because I'm, I'm not sure that there's, uh, from from what she was saying about the dangers of weed smoking for most people are non-existent, you know, so so minor that they're almost non-existent. Yeah, smoking
2: is like the biggest killer in the country or something. Yeah, More smoking time.
0: tobacco is yeah, really, really bad. So if you're a smoker, then you're at risk of diseases and things. But I think in terms of being a parent and worrying about your teenagers doing something that's dangerous, I think... If you're an occasional cannabis smoker, then it's just the same as being an occasional beer drinker. You know, if you've you've got a 15-year-old who's having a few beers every other Saturday night... They're saying,
2: if I was going to take cannabis, I'd take it from vaping, I believe. Yeah. Because I'd hate to smoke.
0: Yes. Yeah, I don't think... Unless you're a really heavy... Like Susie was saying, unless you're a really heavy smoker of weed, then there isn't... The things like the mental health problems the psychosis linked to future depression they're just there aren't as many risks unless you're doing it loads and loads and if you are smoking cannabis every day heavily then you're probably not doing much else with your life anyway so there's, yeah there's other stuff going on you need some help help with from you know your parent your your teacher you know someone needs to get alongside you and find out why you don't want to do anything other than smoke weed all day. So I I felt like actually cannabis in itself isn't like this big scourge. And it's interesting, I was reading that, where do you stand on this? So only 31% of people in the UK oppose the legalisation of cannabis now. So 59% strongly support or support then there must be 10% who are in the middle and don't know or yeah, I whatever. Yeah, think legalisation
2: would be good because, like, it doesn't really do much. From, like, what I've learned throughout this entire thing, I think that would be a good Because it's just a lot of money into criminals. Hmm. There could be money into the government. Yeah. And if it's causing not much harm anyway, it's just extra money that the government can spend on things that it needs to, like the NHS and things like that.
0: Yeah. And, and the police at the moment, although they don't, I think if you spoke to a policeman off the record, unlike the interview I did, where they were very much on the record, but even he was saying they don't deploy policemen to try and take cannabis out of the pockets of 18-year-olds, you know, that, that yeah. it's a kind of a, a hassly waste of police time.
2: They should be focusing on more serious things.
0: Yeah, and they don't wanna be filling in the paperwork ugh, because they've confiscated some Might cannabis. Might go for the
2: dealers, but like, yeah.
0: At the moment, it does fund a lot of criminals. It's their main income, cannabis. Crack, heroin. So if you did legalise, then. Um,
2: it should be money out of the criminals into the government, in my opinion.
0: Yes, which would be good. And it, what's interesting as well is at the moment it's legal in some countries yeah, and no. not in others. To Canada. Yeah, it won't. Um, and they're much more mainstream, big, westernised countries. So it's, it's not like obscure countries a zillion miles away. These are kind of big. But has you know,
2: America done it yet?
0: Lots of states of America have, yeah. California, Colorado. Washington oh, yeah, it's State. Stable. Yeah. What's
2: all that strange? I like half America does this, half America does that. It's like.
0: Yeah, it's weird that they have state laws, and federal laws. Historically. But some quite
2: important ones that are just state.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's sort of, but then some of their states are as big as countries. Yeah. So they do have to have a lot of local government that runs the show, basically. But they do have quite a lot of independence because there's a big hoo-ha at the moment about abortion law.
2: Yeah I know I know. In America. I think like some of them are making abortions illegal which is stupid but.
0: Yeah but you do get these kind of trends where some bits of America are much more conservative with a small C, a much more hard line about moral issues than yeah. others. It's Alabama that's voting to change the abortion law and make it just about illegal and that's real bible belt conservative America you know they don't.
2: It's a Christian country, isn't it? More so than this country, I believe. Yeah,
0: it's a bit led by...
2: Yeah, a bit more led.
0: ...Christian principles.
2: This country, of... is obviously, based, quite a lot of it's based on, like, Christian things, but I like, don't really do it in the same way. It's not a strictly Christian, but you just kind of do, like, fair... Whereas more, like, there it feels like things are quite biased by it.
0: Yeah, they, they, they do have rules in their legislation, like we do, to try and keep the church and the state separate. But lots of Americans campaign on a religious ticket you know you'll get american politicians standing up banging the bible almost and because they know that their constituents that will appeal to a lot of them so then they do vote along religious lines when it comes to moral yeah especially like
2: i think it's more in the south to honest like the kind of get the stereotype of the question like kind of the strong Christian, like things like that
0: Hmm. which makes it all the more weird i should say that um some bits of america are leading the way in legalizing drugs particularly cannabis where they so, just
2: yeah it's just strange how mixed it is
0: they've accepted that it's a, a losing battle i think and that um they can earn money from it some of the states have just decided to that it's obviously a, a way to have income and i think like here their police are stretched and i think they're just sort of realizing yeah. that um their police time is better spent not chasing cannabis I saw an interesting tweet the other day from a guy that is a really good journalist. He's called Michael Power. He wrote a book that I've got, which I haven't read yet called Drugs 2.0, which is about how the drug dealing all takes place online now rather than uh, hmm. rather than face-to-face. So it's sort of how the internet has changed the drug world. Um, but he tweets about drugs all the time. He's really knowledgeable. And he said these three facts, all about some facts and figures that have come out about Colorado a state in the US that's legalized cannabis. Colorado cannabis sales in March 2019, $142 million. Every cent of it accounted for, taxed and kept out of gangsters' hands. Amazing. Yeah. Number two, deaths due to cannabis in Colorado, March 2019, zero. Number three, children enslaved on Colorado cannabis farms, Zero. Good, good, good. It's <laughs> yeah, all pretty good, isn't it? If you make it legal, you know people are running businesses, growing it now, making money out of it. The government is taxing it. There is now $142 million going legally into Colorado.
2: Yeah, that's like...
0: Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And there are already cannabis farms in this country that grow it. There's already opium farms in this country, even in our part of the world, near Dorset, where they grow opium poppies to make heroin... Because, you know, the NHS needs some of it, and we export heroin to, to other parts of the world where they also need painkillers. Yeah. And and cannabis is grown. I think Theresa May's husband has an involvement in a cannabis farm business. Yeah, yeah, He grows cannabis effectively, or his company do, and then they sell it. For medicinal use, you know, it's legal to grow it for, for that reason.
2: Yeah, what are the laws in this country about cannabis? Because, like, isn't that one of those that you can, like, kind of grow it, but, like, as, like, a potted plant or something?
0: No, you're not allowed to grow it in this country.
2: Okay. You know the road of my school? Mm. What does that place sell, like, seeds or something?
0: Yeah, so they get around it in a loophole where they sell cannabis seeds, but they say on their website, we are selling these... Um,
2: souvenirs, right? Yeah,
0: souvenirs, not as seeds. <laughs> I know. So
2: then people just go home and plant them.
0: Yeah. Um, they even say
2: at the front what plants they grow into.
0: I know. Uh, it, yeah. It, it seems like a crazy loophole, but there used to be a... You know that you've heard of legal highs? Um, mm. So these are sort of chemicals that just haven't been made illegal yet. This country seems to be super fast at making things illegal, but... Sometimes you used to go to festivals and you go to shops and you might see these little sachets of things that they would call legal highs, but on the packet it would say plant food, not for human consumption. Oh, but, yeah. but on the that, in a little box on the back, but the label would say something like Crazy Mountain Ecstasy, and that would be <laughs> the name of it. So oh yeah, I have a packet of Wild Green Joy, or or, or common names now a lot of things like Spice. Anyway, so you buy something. Hmm. And on the back it says, not for human consumption, but everyone knows.
2: It's illegal high for human consumption.
0: Yes, but the loophole that they get round is they go, oh no, no, it's plant food we're selling.
2: (laughs) It's plant food. I know,
0: it's it's crackers, isn't it, really? One thing as a practical note that you would need to be aware of, if you're travelling and you're in somewhere like Canada for a while, and then you come home if you've got any cannabis in pockets of rucksacks or anything like that, then obviously, I don't know whether you'd get arrested if you got back here but certainly it would be confiscated and it would cause you a right problem at customs, so yeah. if you are travelling back from a, a country where it's legal, you can't bring any of it back. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was
2: wondering about the laws about that, like how can like, versions work?
0: Yeah, which is interesting because Auntie Keeley, uh, who gets another mention on this podcast, is currently in Canada visiting her daughter who lives there now, but I wonder whether, I don't think she is a cannabis smoker, but I wonder whether she will, whether Brits get their bags searched more often now coming back from Canada.
2: Yeah, because obviously it's not legal here yet. Yeah,
0: and whether, whether since Canada legalised, whether more bags get searched at airports from Brits coming back in case they're bringing back cannabis.
2: But if you go from Canada to a state where it's legalised or something, but it's fine, right?
0: I guess it would be, yeah, if you flew from Canada to
2: It's like only California, anything. It's like, can you hold that's... cigarettes in them in your bag?
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: So because yeah, like smoking's legal in every country. So you can carry it from one country to another.
0: Yes. Yeah, that would be fine. And um, then
2: it's no different if it's legal in both countries.
0: No. But for them flying back here, we shall have to ask her. We'll see her at the weekend.
2: Go
0: together, live in the night. I think cannabis is everywhere now and I think as that survey says so a third of people still don't want it legalized so you won't you won't convince everyone but I think everyone's using it I don't mean everyone but everyone knows someone who is and they're not all dodgy geezers it's just something that lots of people do in my life in real life examples. I have an ex-girlfriend who used to smoke a lot of cannabis and her mum used to post her cannabis to her. Uh, Her mum lived in Shetland and I think she either grew it or knew someone who grew a lot of it. And so the mum used to post cannabis to her daughter. Um, I had another ex, Um. one of my most embarrassing moments was I was going out with this girl who's now a police officer and we went to visit her brother He was a student in a different city and you know so we're sitting around in a student house and it was very similar to the student house that i lived in we sat there in the lounge and i went to go up the stairs to the loo. i thought oh can i use the loo?" and they were like yeah it's just upstairs so i walked over to what i thought was the door to the stairway okay and there was obviously, probably around the room, I didn't see it because they were just behind me, they were probably in slow motion like, no! As I walked over and opened this door, which was actually the door to the under the stairs cupboard, not the stairway, and in it were hundreds of cannabis plants and big hot lamps on them and things like that, where this student house of her brothers had got their all their cannabis growing. And she was just about to go into training for the police. So that was a kind of slightly embarrassing, awkward thing for everybody. <laughs> um, oh my God. I've got a good friend who you know well, I won't say their name, but when I was at university, I didn't smoke cannabis. I think I tried it a couple of times, but I was quite a Christian youth group kind of person. So I was quite sort of like, oh, this is terrible. This is evil. Why are you doing this? And, and he said to me, oh, I think I'll I love it. I'll, I'll smoke it every day. I've died. Why would I not? And I actually think now he's stopped and hardly ever smokes it at all. But at the time I think it was a bit eye opening to me where I thought, oh, maybe smoking cannabis doesn't make you a an evil person, it's just the same as having a drink or smoking a cigarette to these people. Uh, one of our I'm saying it quietly because your window's open, but our next door neighbour smokes quite a bit. Often underneath your window, so I don't know if you ever get the... um... Oh, yeah, I smell it. (laughs) (laughs) Then he seems like a nice guy. He's a responsible father and everything, so... Doesn't seem like a criminal, does he?
2: No.
0: I had a friend whose husband kept his cannabis in the freezer in a Tupperware box marked Herbs, which only got awkward when their children got to an age where they wanted to start helping with the cookery. And I think at one point one of them said, oh, can we use the herbs that are in the freezer, Daddy? <laughs> <laughs> no, let's not put them in this cookery. <laughs> um, Just
2: for that in your bolognese.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> Add a bit of flavour.
0: My favourite cannabis story of someone that I know, again, who you've met, you know, I won't say their name, was when they were at university in Manchester. They were living in a really at the time quite a rough bit of Manchester and they were a big house full of students which obviously all the locals would know, would spot a student house a mile off Uh, and if you were a criminal local then that was a good target house because you've probably got five or six lads living in a house They'll have all brought, this was the 90s obviously so they'll have brought CD players and music and Nintendo Game Boys with them and things like that that would Mm -hmm. have been, you could nick and uh, and sell on so this friend and his mates were big weed smokers and obviously the local criminal gang spotted this and so they were sat on the sofa smoking weed one afternoon middle of the afternoon and they were all quite stoned just sat there glued to daytime television and the door burst open and these two lads came in and just ran around the sofa with gaffer tape and stuck all three of them to the sofa um, and, uh, and then gaffer taped their hands and, and put gaffer tape over their mouths and they were all too stoned to move so they didn't do anything about it and then they just went through the house and robbed them of everything <laughs> 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 and then closed the front door behind them and left them and it was several hours until another housemate got home and was able to unstick them from the sofa oh my god! Uh, so there are dangers and risks to Cannabis use, I guess, but it may not be the dangers and risks that people anticipate.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, that last one's just unlike um, just the area itself and just the people.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just
2: getting robbed by a criminal gang.
0: Yes, completely.
2: <laughs> they were more I'm sticking to the sofa.
0: I know, it's brilliant, isn't it? Brilliantly yeah. inventive robbery uh, technique. Well, good chat, thanks. Yeah. Not many more episodes left of our podcast. The next one is gonna be a guy with a brilliant name called Harry Shapiro. Damn. Who is the founder of an organization called Drugwise, who have a brilliant website online with just, if you ever wanted to know a thing about any drug just type in drug wise and then the name of that drug and there'll be a fact Mm. sheet all about it it's really good and he also has written lots of books all about the connection between music and musicians and drugs and hollywood and drugs and things like that so he's an interesting guy Uh, yeah i'm sure that would be good yeah we'll do that next week um thanks bye
2: Yes. Cool. Here's your mark back.